You're listening to The Horror. Welcome to The Horror. I'm Russell Sharman. And I'm Owen Edgerton. We're two film nerds. I love horror. And I don't. And one of us is correct. And welcome to episode one. You're listening to the the pilot episode. The virginal the, the podcast. The virginal, that's, mm, that's a better title <laughs> than the horror, is the virginal podcast. I would listen to that a lot. I'm sure you would. So today we uh, we talked a, a while about doing this podcast together, and, and uh, we were we were casting about for what film should we tackle first in this epic adventure of trying to convince me that horror films are worth watching. And mm. Owen, you came up with, uh, I suppose one would call it a classic, uh, Night of the Living Dead. It's, wow! Just even your it, introduction is already throwing shade. On, on a classic. Uh, yeah, yes. Um, before before we jump into what is not considered a classic, it is a classic and is either recognized by certain individuals or not. That, that doesn't change the quality of the film, the person's lack of recognition. Before we jump into Night of the Living Dead, I, let, let me give a little introduction of who you are and, uh, and why, why this blindness in your taste in film is, is remarkable. So Dr. Russell Lee Sharman, a PhD, of all things, from Oxford University in anthropology, also teaches film at the University of Arkansas, is a, is a screenwriter and a director, and you love and know so much about film, but you have this, this hole in your heart, a, a horror-shaped hole, as Pascal would put it. Um, and, and Owen Edgerton. Dr. Owen Edgerton. Uh, <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> he plays one. On television. Um, uh, Owen Edgerton is a writer, a novelist, a poet, a dancer, uh, at least in his own home, uh, a father of two incredible children, um, and really one of the best writers I know personally. He's also an incredible filmmaker and screenwriter. He has three feature films under his belt, uh, the, the latest of which, Mercy Black, is now streaming on Netflix. So you should check it out since everyone is gifted a Netflix subscription at birth these days. Mm. You have no excuse. And uh, he is an all-around jack-of-all-trades entertainer, comedian, performer in Austin. He's very big in Austin is what I'm saying. In, in, in central Austin, not, not the outskirts. In a, it's a four-block area. <laughs> and your new short film... Animal that you're you're you've got the Kickstarter going for that that looks very horror. You're, the way you're pitching it is very horror. Well, I know which side of the bread is buttered or whatever that saying is. <laughs> That's not the <laughs> saying. It's not the saying at all. Uh, <laughs> it, well, this is what this podcast is going to be all about. It's not that I don't appreciate a good scare. I do. Uh, it's more the the tropes of the genre in general that I find tiresome. Which is really just a pedantic way of saying I don't like being scared, and, ah. and those movies are scary, <laughs> which we'll get into with Night of the Living Dead. I don't know how good of a, a first introduction it was, but we'll get to that. Well, okay, so let's talk about really quickly about actually before I even talk about Night of the Living Dead, I'm, there's a big question actually because um, is 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 how you saw it in what format did you see it like where where did you go to watch it? Well, that's a great question. First of all, if um, if any of you are members of your public library as you well should be, uh, and or connected or affiliated to a university, you may have access. This feels like a plug. They're not a sponsor, but Canopy with a K 
mm. is this incredible streaming service that's available through libraries. Uh, and they have almost every Criterion Collection film, um, an incredible array of foreign films. Uh, and they happen to have Night of the Living Dead. So that is where I watched it. Now, um, my wife and I, last night, we we curled up and we we hit play on The Unicorn Store, <laughs> now streaming on yes, Netflix. Yes. Um, a whimsical tale of a young woman hoping to purchase a unicorn. It hit about 9.30 and we were about ready to go to sleep, which is, you know, about our bedtime. And I realized, oh crap, I'm supposed to watch Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> so so I, I went back out to the living room uh, and I think you'd be proud. I turned off all the lights oh, yes. and uh, pulled up my laptop. It was on a laptop. Uh, and I, I watched it without checking my email once. I just watched it straight oh. through in the dark uh, on my laptop uh, way past my bedtime. So I think it could not have been much better in terms of the, the circumstances. That is great. The reason, one of the reasons I ask is because when the, this kind of a famous thing about this movie, when the movie was released, they had, they were initially it was going to be called night of the flesh eaters and they had trademarked the name. And, and when the title came up, of course it was a little copyright symbol and everything like that. When they changed the name to night of the living dead, they, they left off that copyright symbol. So this film was famously initially distributed without being copywritten. So there are uh, so many different takeoffs, ripoffs, and also like home video D DVD releases of the film that give no money to the original filmmakers uh, because they failed to uh, portray copyright. So basically it, right? it's the It's a Wonderful Life of horror movies. Exactly. Exactly. I got and that. I got that sense when I was watching ghouls eat intestines i thought of it's a wonderful life they both have an essential scene at a cemetery they're both true, about true. Uh, respecting respecting life there's a big finale when a lot of people come into the house <laughs> it's exactly <laughs> it and when little zuzu kills her mother with the spade that to me donna <laughs> reed i don't think ever gave a better performance that is that scene is a huge scene for me. All right, so what did you think? What were your initial thoughts? Um, okay, well, you know, I don't want to nitpick too much in terms of the production values because I get what this is. It was 1968, is that right? Yes. Um, so that that year was rattling around in my head as I watched it, and I'm thinking of titles like The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde uh, that were made at the same time. Um, and it made it a little it made it a little hard for me to forgive some of the student film quality of the cinematography and the acting. But I tried to like set that aside because I kept I actually was chastising myself the whole time. Just let that go. Just embrace it uh, for what it is. Uh, this tight little sort of what do you call it? A bottle episode where they're all trapped uh, in one location. Uh, yeah, I call it a classic film. But go on. <laughs> Uh, but there was also I, I I found some of some of uh, especially Barbara who did get annoying, um, but some of her early early work in the film was uh, what well, I thought was very physical and interesting. I I can't say I was ever frightened, mm. which and that's maybe something we'll come back to in sort of the evolution of the horror genre because I've definitely been frightened in horror movies. Sure. Um, but but when I think about classic horror, obviously there was a sort of evolution in the cinematic language where what would scare an audience in the 40s, 50s or 60s maybe has lost some of its potency today. But overall, I would give this film, um, I don't know, a C for quality. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> 
What like okay name name a what's a B name a in your B world not a like horror a movie, B horror what, movie or a B film no no, no a, a B film like what are we what's a, what's another C what are we comparing it to well like I say it felt like a student film now here, let me let me do a, a caveat here so every year I teach or every semester I teach this big uh, film lecture class here at the University of Arkansas and I show a dozen films over the course of the semester that's meant to demonstrate different aspects of filmmaking. And, and the first one is I try to just sort of put out there a sort of benchmark in terms of both historical filmmaking, but also great filmmaking. So of course I show Citizen Kane. I'm not a huge fan of Citizen Kane in mm, general. Okay. Uh, mm. I respect it. I respect what Orson Welles was doing and the innovations of the craft in that film. But I know students hate it. <laughs> They, uh, mm. very rarely is a student moved by that film. And part of that is because what Orson Welles is doing back in the forties was way ahead of his time, but now feels a little tired or yeah, done. Yeah. So I also recognize, and I recognize this as I was watching Night of the Living Dead, that, that I'm seeing things that, that had not been seen before at the time. So trying to watch it with 1968 eyes was a challenge, and I was trying to have some grace for it because I know so many have so many others have ripped off the imagery and the tropes in this film that you got to give it respect for being the first. At least I assume it's the first. Yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a good observation. All right, so a, a little a little cultural uh, set setup. Uh, really wise that you're observing this as being like coming out in 1968 uh, because it did have like part of its impact was because of that. It's it was made outside of Pittsburgh. Jo uh, George Romero and uh, a bunch of his friends who basically had been doing kind of like commercials and industrials and stuff like that. They they sort of rallied together, put a lot of money together, and they said let's let's make a movie. And and horror movies are doing okay right now. And uh, and they made this on a dime. Um, I think the budget was a little over, you know, a uh, hundred thousand uh, eventually, but I think they started out with like 6,000 and uh, they just got a lot of people in Pittsburgh to sort of join in and, and help them make it. And, and when this came out in theaters, you know, this was before we had like a rating system. This is before R rated films. So, you know, this was playing like there were matinees of this and kids were like, you know, going in to see what they, and, and the, the film sort of, it's, it's on this border. Like we have like a, when, when people talk about the golden ages of horror in, in, in uh, Western films, they've got the 1930s and the universal horror movies and everything that came out of that, Frankenstein, Dracula, and on. And then you have the 70s as its sort of own horror. And, and, and some people are saying now uh, with the release of my film, Mercy Black, currently available on Netflix. Uh, but, but like this is like it's right at this cusp of moving into the 70s and uh and moving out of like sort of the uh, ufo uh cheap horror movies and cheap sci-fi movies that were the 1950s and moving into something that was much more violent and uh and visceral of of the 70s and so like part of the stuff that you're kind of bumping up against the sort of a uh, clunky uh, script and the, the clunky camera work kind of made it in some ways, I don't know, in my opinion, makes it more frightening because I don't know what's going on. I mean, there's, it, there's almost like a, uh, almost a handheld feel to it that, that makes it even scarier. There's just a little bit, okay, a little but, bit. And I find, yeah. But yeah. are you saying you were ever like genuinely afraid when you watched this movie? Okay. 
Well, when I, when I watched this movie initially, I was a kid. I watched it on late night television. And uh, I remember a few things distinctly. One is, you know, I was starting out, I was like, yeah, all right, I get this. You know, I've seen Vincent Price movies. And, you know, Last Man on Earth was uh, an old Vincent Price uh, based on the novel I Am Legend. It's like, oh, this is, this is you know, that kind of vein. The world is full of zombies. I get it. I get it. Then they start, like, eating colons. And they're eating meat that was just bought from the store, like raw meat, just, just you know. And they're doing that. And then the little girl kills her mother with a little garden tool. Okay, that was and- an affecting moment. I will, I will give oh. Romero that moment it's ter- thank you uh, thank you we'll tell his his uh his corpse that <laughs> you give it you give him that i also remember i think shortly after like i was watching and i was trying to go to sleep and we we're at this little uh cabin where my family's vacationing i started hearing moaning i'm like oh it's the zombies but i think i i overheard my parents making love which i think has impacted my relationship to horror <laughs> Ever since, but yeah, I was terrified. I was terrified. I still find this terrifying. I watched it again, and I was like, "It's this is just so. It's just so damn good." Well, it, and at some point, we should talk about the politics of of the movie because I think they oh. are they're doing some interesting things, both in terms of casting. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's I think the big innovation of the film in some ways. But I, I was also sort of intrigued by the morality of it. Uh, in the yeah. sense that I, I really wanted to coalesce around, I, I suppose his name is Ben, though we don't ever hear his name in the movie, as I, as far as I can tell. It's in the credits. His name is Ben, the lead character. Or at least I call him the lead. Yeah, Dwayne, by Dwayne Jones. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But when he shoots, what is it? Mr. Cooper. Mr. Cooper. There was this real moment of, oh, that. Uh, I mean, yeah, that guy was annoying, but you just murdered somebody. Um, yeah. And it really left me feeling like, okay, this is, this is sort of chancy as a film in terms of who am I supposed to root for in this situation? Cause Ben had an edge, but he was at least uh, making smart choices and trying to protect people. It seemed the only really good person uh, got blown up in a truck. He happened to also yeah. be the worst actor, but the best person in the yes. movie. Keith Wayne, Tom. Yeah. He's, he's, he is a good person. He's he's like, hey, everybody, we can all get along. <laughs> <laughs> also, by the way, does Ben ever recognize the fact that the only reason he survives as long as he does, spoiler, is because Mr. Cooper was right? About going into about the basement. Going into the basement? That argument chews up about 20 minutes of screen time. And it's a completely pointless argument. Oh my gosh. I think you are underestimating how much the movie relies about the question of going to the basement or not. It's it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, one more thing. I, I do think this is a cool thing that a lot of like film critics have jumped upon of this being this transition to the new horror of what was going to be the 70s and everything. And it's at the very beginning, you know, they have the brother, John, you know, the first guy yes, who gets yes. killed by a ghoul. And he's... He's doing a Boris Karloff imitation. I mean, the right, coming the, to catch yeah, yeah, Barbara. With the yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's this cool thing of like, oh, it's this last tip of the hat to, to the king of old horror as we move into the new. Well, and yeah, and you know, in, in, in my reference to Citizen Kane is not accidental because I was thinking also as I was watching it, we, you know, joking aside about It's Wonderful Life, this, this does seem kind of like the Citizen Kane of horror. In the sense that Citizen Kane wasn't the first drama narrative, uh, in the sense that this is not the first horror movie, but it does seem the first of its kind in terms of the body horror 
and the sort of gross out quality of it, uh, the violence, as you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're totally right. You're totally right. In fact, it's it is the first of like the modern and like everything we know about zombies comes from this movie. So before there'd been like uh, Bella Lugosi in White Zombie, uh, there'd been I Walk with a Zombie. These are really cool zombie movies. They've got a, a lot more sort of uh, zombie, uh, you know, religious lore and, uh, and and aspects to it. But and and you know, bringing back one dead person, nothing like. All the dead are rising. This is the first of that. All the dead rising, and you have to somehow kill kill them in the head uh, in order to kill them. This gave rise to everything from The Walking Dead now to everything we know about zombies. George Romero went on to make, 10 years later, Dawn of the Dead, which is a masterpiece. Day of the Dead after that. Then he also went on Land of the Dead Diary of the Dead, Survival of the Dead. Uh, meanwhile, they, they split off and they started making Return of the Living Dead, which Dan O'Bannon, who wrote Alien, wrote and directed. And they, I think they've made Return of the Living Dead 2, Return of the Living Dead 3. Those are all pretty good. They started them being made like over in Europe, and I think they've made four and five. I'm not, I'm not sure how many. All these zombies that we're running around now are, are, are the offshoot of, of Russo and, and Romero's script and, and this kind of violence, this kind of flesh-eating cannibal zombies. That's all from them. That's That was never before. So, yeah, it, it was new. Right, so I it's, wonder how much of your appreciation for the movie is tied to its legacy in the same way that I can respect Citizen Kane, but I'm not going to pop it in on a Saturday night. Uh, I'm there's a dozen other films of the era that I would rather watch, but citizen that you Kane, find more fun. Uh, yeah. Or some personal connection to, for example, Casablanca. Yeah. But, uh, but I respect it even if I don't necessarily a- appreciate it as a piece of entertainment. I, I totally get what you're saying. And no, I love it. I, I, I love, like, I was wondering, like I was watching it again and I just love watching it. I love how the camera angles get weirder. And what I was saying about like not being able to quite trust the filmmakers, that kind of sloppiness, that really kind of works for me because it it means like I don't I don't know what's gonna happen. Like, you know, you can watch some films and you trust the filmmaker. You know they're gonna be telling you a tale. They might surprise you, but they're never going to truly shock you because you you trust them. They're from Hollywood, they're safe. You know, they're nice. But in this movie, you're like, oh, they're not from Hollywood. They might not even know what they're doing. They might show me something I regret seeing, you know? And and in some ways, that's kind of what they did. I don't think these people were out, you know, Romero and his crew were not trying to make something that had never been seen before. They're like, hey, we're just going to try and make a, a kind of fun horror movie. And then they, they said, well, what if we, you know, give them like raw meat to eat? Well, and Throw that actually, out there. that brings me to another point which i think will probably be a theme in our conversations which is there is a there is a, there is that element of horror especially modern horror that i just don't get and don't appreciate and that is the kind of body horror gross out stuff gore, gore the gore the 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 eating the millipede off the tree and oh, the, yeah. the you know fat off the bones from Ugh. from the couple from the truck and and i just wonder as we cut back to that for the fifth and seventh and ninth time for these lingering shots and I, I, it's not moving it's not scaring me it's just grossing me out and i don't understand why that's supposed to be entertaining well that's a great question and maybe to like let's go back to again it's 1968 if you were you know left the movie theater you went home and turned on the tv what were you seeing you were seeing vietnam 
and uh, and images again and again and again of just horrific you know aspects of warfare and 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 you know that's why uh, the filmmakers later on were sort of credited of like ah oh, they're they're making a comment on Vietnam I don't think they were intentionally making a comment on Vietnam well I mean that, then uh, that's the question like had we become as a society so desensitized that we needed that kind of jolt that we didn't get in you know Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney movies or were they exploiting that aspect of of contemporary society I I think it's more responding um, that the idea of like, if this horror is existing out there, then the horror that exists in the world seeps into our entertainment. And usually in our entertainment, it's kind of, it's the way we deal in a safe space, like we do in dreams and nightmares with the true terrors, which are out there. So we are now aware that our, in in Vietnam, uh, that our government was partaking in, in horrible warfare and these horrible things were happening. And I think it seeps into what is our cultural dreams and nightmares, which is the movies we see so that we can start to process. Well, and that may be true, but I think you're probably onto something when you say uh, how much were Romero really responding to, to Vietnam because we can talk about the politics of the, of the film or the perceived politics because the, the final sequence, it Mm. has a a startling sort of uh, echo of a lynch mob. And, totally. uh, you know, you can't deny, obviously, the race of Ben's character, uh, the fact that he's shot. He's not unarmed, but he is shot um, by law enforcement at the end. So there there are those hints. But then as I try to think more deeply about it, it, it's hard for me to come up with a convincing intellectual case that they were trying to make a comment on race uh, in the film. It was almost accidental in a way. Or not? I don't know. I don't know their intention. No, no. Here they they've talked about this. So of course they got a lot of credit in the indie film world uh, by casting Dwayne Jones. But as Romero often said when asked about it, he's just like, listen, he was just the best actor who was available. Like we we did not write necessarily the character as a black man. We we wrote the character as actually this trucker. In fact, when Dwayne got the role, the trucker was kind of. You know, like, ah, I'm kind of a, a not so bright trucker. And Dwayne was like, I don't want to play it like that. I want to play this guy as as an intelligent and strong character. And this is how I'm, I'm going to do it. And they were like, that sounds great. But there were, like, even when they're shooting it, like Dwayne Jones was uh, saying like, wait, wait, you, you want me to slap Barbara, Judith O'Day? You want me to slap her? He's like, I'm a black man slapping a white woman. This, this could get me killed. You know, this is this is dangerous stuff. And and George is like, don't worry, just do it. <laughs> and so, I mean, without a doubt. I mean, well, you know, it's interesting you point in- you you mentioned that because it was hard not to think about those implications when he does. And he doesn't just slap her. He punches her out yeah. and he lays her on the couch and then he opens her coat. And, and I couldn't help thinking again in the context of 1968 of what an audience seeing a, a black man punching out a white woman, laying her out on the couch and then opening her coat, which I know mm-hmm. was an act of, of caring. I read mm-hmm. it, I think the way it was intended, which it was not in any way sexual, but for an audience of the time, I wondered, what was that? What were they, what were they trying to do there? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's one of those moments, whether accidental or not, because I'm with you, that, that this movie, like, like a good horror movie, and this is why I think independent horror movies are sometimes the best, like a good horror movie, it crosses a line. Um, and it, when it crosses a line, it's again, it's like, oh, I feel less safe now because you're not playing within the lines. 
a lot of times the, the horror movies that come down from Hollywood often, not always, but often are like, oh, they're, they're going to stay within the lines. Like we know who, we, we feel who's going to die and who's not going to die. We, we get it. And, but every now and then there's something like crosses a line like this, which co- crosses a sort of cultural line or moments like, oh my God, what? They, they just showed me that. What, what else are they going to show me? Uh, and I think that throws us off our guard. And uh, personally, I love being thrown off my guard. I love being uh, you know, made uh, unsteady by a film. Uh, and it's, it's why I still dig this one. Well, we should probably also talk about zombie movies in general. And you can help me get my head around. Because I want to believe that the, the genre is saying something about the human sort of fear of death and how we all respond to what happens after we die. Uh, I I want to believe there's some deep thinking going on here. Uh, I'm just not sure where it is. Well, if, I mean, honestly, honestly, if, if it were so clear, if it were so clear of like, Hmm, zombies are racist and living people are not racist or whatever it was. If it was so clear, it would be an awful genre. If we were able to kind of pin down, this is what zombies stand for, that that, that you would be so bored with that almost immediately uh, because we'd be feeling we're being preached to. I think, th- thankfully, most of the filmmakers who have, have been playing with zombies you know, have some ideas, but they don't understand completely, or, or, the, or at least there's more to the metaphor of zombies than anyone nails. George Romero famously said, what's scary about zombies is that they're us, they're our neighbors, and there's nothing scarier than our neighbors. So this is kind of a cool message that starts in the 1960s. The 1950s had been, and into the 60s had all been, our enemy is Russia and communists. Our enemy are people trying to infiltrate America. And then here comes George Romero to say, you know who our enemies are? Well, eventually it's going to be your brother who you saw get killed. Now he's coming for you. Like it's it's going to be the, the guy who's in your, your basement. It's going to be your daughter who kills you. Like suddenly it's us turning on us. And Romero definitely loved to play with the politics. He does a lot of fun stuff with uh, commercialism and, and basic materialistic greed in Dawn of the Dead and... And he's always sort of playing with that. For me personally, it's it's a little bit. I I once wrote a, a piece about zombies kind of representing Americans overall. Like you know, when Americans travel aboard, you know, one of them, yeah, they eat too much and they're a little, little annoying, <laughs> maybe a little slow. But one one on, on one, they're fine. But if you get a whole bunch of Americans come into your country, ah, <laughs> so. <laughs> I don't know. So, I mean, I, th- I mean, I think the, there's definitely, I think we, we as people have a fear of becoming as individuals, something that is no longer us. This is something I think we fear about aging. It's something we definitely fear about death when our body starts to become this mass, which is not us. And when we have an animated corpse, which looks like us, but is not us in any way, I think that sort of is some fundamental about death. What's scarier? I wonder, I wonder if that is, I don't know, if that is in part why, A, this movie didn't scare me, and B, well, I mean, I, there's all, obviously the issue of of how film is advanced and, and, and the cinematic techniques being transparent to me, but, but also sort of where you are psychologically, emotionally, mm-hmm. when you engage a movie like this, or really any kind of movie. And it's not that more modern horror couldn't scare me with trickery. And thing, and I'm, I'm sure we'll also talk 
in future episodes about the difference between surprise and suspense. But sure. I wonder, you know, if, if you are less sure of who you are, and, and even if you're you're less sure of a sense of what happens after you die, do these movies have a, a lesser or greater effect on you? Uh, that's an interesting, that's, that's a big question. Like if, if, if your faith or feelings or philosophy do, dealing with mortality and afterlife, how does that impact a film like this? Well, and uh, I should also make clear, there are plenty of films that would be considered, and maybe this is a debate we can have of what, what falls into the category firmly enough of horror that I that I count as some of my favorite films um, or, or at the very least enjoy and watch more than once. So the shining would be one. Certainly Rosemary's baby would be another. Um, These are definitely horror movies. Yes. Uh, and you know, what's funny is there's a part of me that, that thinks, well, are they, because I like them. So they can't, <laughs> they can't, <laughs> they can't really be horror. And yes. even more like I, I a big fan of get out. I, I really liked a quiet place. But I think part of my appreciation for those films came out of an appreciation for what they were doing aside from the horror tropes that they were working in. Mm. And it's the it's the it's the films that don't seem to have something bigger on their mind that either bore me or repulse me, repel me. Uh, and that's that's I think my my problem with the genre is so so they're so easy to make and so many people make them and so many folks don't seem to have anything bigger on their minds so I, I don't think they're easy to make uh, you know I, i'm gonna push back i mean i think any you know that any movie's hard as hell to make and and uh and you know because it's a horror genre like uh, i'm gonna take issue with it okay well let me but, let me let me but, clarify okay okay uh in the industry, one could argue uh, that as a genre, you don't need the same kind of elements you need for a drama. For example, name actors or mm, okay. at really high production values, as long as the basic premise is one that fits what has sold before, it is much easier to get financing. Yes, absolutely. It still requires skill. And there are plenty of movies yes, yes. that are made, I think, in part because they are easier to make, quote unquote, in the sense of getting a green light that are made by people who don't know necessarily what they're doing. And that's why sometimes I'm not a fan, uh, because they aren't crafted as well as other films. But maybe I'm being a jerk and too judgmental. No, no, no. But I mean, yes, yes. Yes, you are. Uh, because, I mean, that, that's a little bit like, uh, you know, m indies films over the last 20 years. We've seen Mumblecore. We've seen a bunch of different things. Now, Mumblecore was an interesting thing. This film kind of went to digital, and there were these less expensive films made very, very easy to finance because if you had a credit card, you could finance them. And, and some of them were really great, and some of them were not really great. And the same with horror movies. Some of them are really great. You mentioned some of them. The Shining, Rosemary's Baby, Get Out. And some of them are not really great, which also end up getting some kind of distribution. It's true. So I think it's a little unfair to kind of go, I don't like bad horror movies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and if they're really good, maybe they're not horror movies. <laughs> yes, that is an little... excellent summary. That is exactly how I feel. <laughs> 
Um, uh, well, well, it, well, let me and, ask you this then. Well, wait, yeah. before you ask you that, uh, I think an interesting okay. example of this would be, and I, I, shockingly, I haven't seen it. And that's a recent release. Um, I believe it's called The Nun, which got very, very bad reviews, universally panned by critics, um, but mm-hmm. was a big financial success. Huge. And I think the reason it's a success is the same reason why that genre has an easier path in terms of financing. Obviously there's a, there's a causation and correlation there, but because if you are able to scare the shit out of people effectively, yes. yeah. uh, it doesn't matter to a certain extent if the filmmaking craft is at a certain standard or the acting or the, the named actors or, or what have you, those elements aren't as important. If they aren't, if they are there so much, the better, <laughs> but they don't have to be there for it to work. I hear you. I mean, that that is, but I think you can say the same for action movies. I think you can say the same for pornographic movies. <laughs> I think you can say that like, there's a lot of movies that, that are maybe huge financial hits that that are not necessarily good but there's something that works about them even if it's not the overall emotional drive of craft that that you are particularly gifted in of like finding that emotional and bigger emotional drive and a, and a bigger uh message or, or or at least bigger theme being dealt with but but let me ask you this you're saying night of the living dead you felt doesn't doesn't move into like, like you, pre, you, you would never question whether this is a horror movie or not, meaning you didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, now let me No, It's more nuanced. It's not that I didn't like okay. it in the same way that I like Citizen Kane. It, okay. I, I am perfectly willing to say Night of the Living Dead is the Citizen Kane of horror movies, which granted, given my particular worldview is maybe not saying a whole lot. But still, just that quote, I definitely respect it. You respect it. I, I, I respect that you respect it. Did, I know you weren't scared. Were you entertained by watching it? That is an interesting question. Because, because one of the, the, the questions that's rattling around in my head, because part, this, this whole podcast is in part sort of therapy for me in trying to work out <laughs> like what is my deal with horror movies. Because there's a, there is the, the part of me that's a bit of a prude that, that is, that is a bit of, uh, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that gore. Why do I want those images in my head? Uh, it, it doesn't seem healthy psychologically. And there's other voice in my head saying, well, you know, all right, morality police, what, <laughs> you know, what's, what's your problem? But I can't, you know, I can't shake it. I can't shake that, that idea. So was I entertained? Um, I found certain moments compelling. I found the death scene uh, uh, I, when the daughter kills her mother, Mrs. Cooper. Um, yeah. That was incredibly compelling. Huh, taunting, and, yeah. and, you know, so many other creatures slash people get killed in such an unconvincing way throughout the film. Yeah. Most usually by by Ben uh, when he's killing someone, his sort of um, clearly... Uh, not hitting someone where they should be hit. Sure, sure, sure. But that that killing and it's it's you know there's a lot of psycho in there. Oh, no, right? absolutely. The, the, yes. Even the shadows and the, and the sound ways, design, yeah. which is very yeah, simple yeah. but very effective. But I it think is. it's also because I cared about that relationship. Sure. And that's what made it compelling in the moment. And that to me, what was truly horrifying about it. The rest of it was just gross and mm. almost silly. Like when they're reaching through and uh nice guy, bad actor, whatever his name was, um, is 
hacking at them with the kitchen knife and cutting off these clearly like wax fingers. Mm. Like it, that just seemed silly. And the editing in that particular sequence was repetitive and uh, it, it, people weren't acting in a way that seemed logical for the moment because they wanted to prolong the quote unquote terror of that situation. But I wasn't, I wasn't buying it. So it wasn't you were, yeah. terrifying, but the basement scene that was terrifying. And and the ending, the ending you, did you remember the ending when you got there? I don't think I've ever seen this movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> what? So oh, no way to remember it. Excuse, I just, uh, I do. Ooh, I'm, Spit up a little bit when you said that. <laughs> uh, the ending is. Have you uh, seen is, Citizen Kane? Yes, I've seen Citizen okay. Kane. Just check. A lot of people, you know, it's like reading. I don't know. Moby Dick or something. Moby Dick. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, that you know they say they have, but they haven't. Well, you know the thing is though. Here's the problem with a with a quote unquote classic. I knew the ending. I, I knew the ending was oh. the main character who is a black man is killed by basically a posse slash lynch mob because they think he's a zombie. So I knew, by, by the way, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie. Um, <laughs> uh, so I knew that was coming and I was waiting for it. it so it wasn't a surprise. But uh, but I, when I first heard that was a plot element, uh, yes. you know, I was like, oh, that's good. You know, that's a. That's powerful. That's um. That's a smart move. Uh, so, so I already respected the hell out of that ending. Yes. Before I saw it. Well, moving into moving into summing up, I think you, you, I really appreciate your idea of like watching this as it as it or trying to imagine how this was like seen when first on the screens uh, back in 1968. I mean, it's it's only it's 56 maybe an hour 56 minutes in before we find out that these are dead people. <laughs> You know, it's only then that, and that they're eating flesh comes in later. Like it's, it's a, it's like, oh, but like, and now we know immediately uh, when we see uh, someone walking with a limp going, we know that they're a zombie and things like the ending being, being a surprise. And it's probably is something to sort of battle. I would recommend, and this is sort of extended work if you ever want to do it, of moving on through Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead. That George Romero trilogy of those three is pretty brilliant Without a doubt, the one that has the most humor, and I think probably is is the masterpiece of all of them, is is Dawn of the Dead. That's when you get like people hiding in a mall from zombies, and that <laughs> that cliche. Well, I think we should clarify something. Yes, this is not a twelve step program to get me to like horror movies oh, oh, as yes. much as you'd like it no. to be. I am only going to watch the titles you make me watch, and then we talk about. If you think I'm going to go rent the box set of <laughs> living dead movies that is not i've got way more unicorn store movies to watch wow well we'll just see this is we're gonna be listening back on this uh and and you're gonna be like dude we'll be at some horror con together and you'll be wearing your george romero lives t-shirts and you'll be like dude i can't believe that guy was me <laughs> uh maybe maybe and that's a really Who's hard to say that's the horror isn't it of becoming something that isn't you that's the horror of death that's the horror of zombie movies, and we have George Romero to thank for showing us this mirror image of ourselves. And that's episode one of the horror. <laughs> that's a good conclusion. Uh, yeah. Uh, thanks so much, Owen, for forcing me to watch Night of the Living Dead at home, alone, in the dark, with my computer. And uh, I look forward to watching more um, moderately competent films considered mm. classics. And am, I suppose, expanding my horizons. That's great. I, that's, that's as much as I can hope for. Mm-hmm.